I'm kind of reluctant most of the time to do character studies and sermons as if Bible characters are uh, inherently good, like they're put in the scriptures to make us want to be like them, because that's not usually the case. God is the main actor you're to learn from, but that doesn't stop you from realizing these characters of scripture have a role to play, and you can study them and see what kind of impact they had on the people around them, and also what kind of impact others had on them as well. And maybe that's what we're supposed to do. And so tonight we're going to look at Absalom a little bit. We're mostly looking at David. That's what the first, second Samuel are about, is really exonerating and honoring David. And God is definitely using David to accomplish his purpose. But Absalom plays an interesting dark role in the story. He is the grandson of a king. He's the son of a king's daughter, and he himself is the king's son. He's got royalty all around him. What does that mean? He is spoiled. That's what it means. He's a spoiled character, right? Listen to this description of him in chapter 14, the text before where we are. Now, in all Israel, there was not a man as highly praised for his handsome appearance is Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Wow! How many think that should be said of you? Cameron, go ahead. Go ahead. The Word of God, inspired by God, there's all sorts of things God left out that I'd like to know, but he insists on putting this in there. And we have the statue of David. Why don't we have a statue of Absalom? He's the one who's perfect. Absalom is the most perfect, unblemished man to ever live kind of thing. That's kind of like the verse it put in there. Now, it gets even better than this. For those of you who really like the hair feature, listen to this. Next screen. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it once a year. Uh, When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels, five pounds is what that is. He loved his flowing hair. He looked like this. Let's see if I've got the picture in here. Yeah, looks just sort of like that. That's kind of what I think of when I think of Absalom, that long flowing hair that he cut off before his wedding. But anyway, uh, to get back to this, that's kind of what I think of. This, that's who he is. This is what Scripture says. Working through history, these details are really important. Why was this said? I think all this is piled up to say this. He had an entitled upbringing. He had the looks and the charm to do whatever he wanted. That's kind of the caricature of Absalom. He gets married. We don't know what his wife's name was. We do know that he had a daughter. And he named his daughter after his sister Tamar, who was, was assaulted by Amnon. And so he had this, and by the way, it says she came, became a beautiful woman herself. And so uh, Absalom has this heart, at least, for her. He was born in Hebron. David uh, ruled from there for a few months, a few years actually, before he became the whole king of Israel and Judah. That was Judah alone, third, year, third son of David. Son number one was already out of the picture. Son number two never seemed to enter the picture. And so it's very uh, logical that Absalom is the next in line for the throne, or so he thinks. And yet, 
He's got this murder on his record, right? And he wants to come back. He goes away to a foreign land where his grandfather is a king in some other land. He goes and he lives there for three years, and then David brings him back. The only way he got David to bring him back is Joab interceded for him. He's the general, right? And so the general intercedes, gets David to let Absalom come back to, to Israel. But even when he comes back, David refuses to actually meet him face to face. David is not certain whether the people of Israel accept his son or not. He's not certain this is a fair shake to let his son come back like this. And so for a couple of years, he's in Israel, but won't see him. Well, Absalom really wants to see his dad for some reason, and so he asks Joab, okay, you got me here, now I want you to get me uh, an audience with my dad, and Joab ignores him. He asks him again, he ignores him. He asks him again, he ignores him. And finally, because he wants his attention, he goes to Joab's field, he's got a barley field, and he lights it on fire, and he burns acres of barley, which is a lot of money, he burns his property to get Joab's attention. He got it. Joab says, what in the world do you want? You see, when you're an entitled person and somebody isn't paying attention, you do something like that. You become an arsonist to get their attention. Joab does this thing and he gets them back together. David does kiss his son, but it sounds very odd. It sounds like they didn't have a real good reunion. But there is at least some kind of peace restored. And with this, with this renewed relationship of allowance in Israel, he gets to work on this plot that he's hatched a long time. Step number one, he gets himself a car. I don't mean a car, I mean a chariot. You see that in chapter 15. Absalom got himself a chariot with some horses. Now, this, here's what Absalom looks like with his chariot today. Let me see if he's got that picture up there. There's Absalom's chariot, see? He's proud of that thing. Anyway, I've drained that too much. Go back to the other screen. He gets his chariot, right? And it says he, he has the horses that haul the chariot. So he puts the, the horses in front of the chariot because he wants to look royal. He wants to look wealthy. He wants to look powerful. And so he's got a chariot that's, that's led by horses. But that's not all. He's got 50 men lined up in front of it to run in front of the chariot. This is gaudy. This is like a Hummer limousine. This is like going way overboard because it's certainly not efficient. Tell me how fast you think you can go with a chariot led by horses with 50 men running in front of it. How fast do you think you could go? Not very, right? This is all for show. It's ostentatious. There's a Gary James word, ostentatious. By the way, this is Gary James' mother's birthday today. She would have been 111 years old. I know that because she was born on Halloween, and we used to have a party at church for her every year. It was a Halloween thing, but we called it a Lona May party. That's just, I don't know why I say that right now. But anyway, and by the way, James Lawson is going to be 89 come Wednesday or Tuesday? His last year in the 80s, so he's not going to be an octogenarian much longer. Anyway, so he gets this horse, this chariot, and he's got these 50 men, and everywhere he goes, it's a gaudy production. That's not the only thing he does. Notice our text in chapter 15, verse 2. Absalom used to rise up early, and he would stand beside the way to the gate, of the gate. And when any man had a dispute, and he needed to bring it before the king for judgment, Absalom 
would call to him and say, hey, where are you from? And when he said, your servant is such and such a tribe, I'm from Simeon, we'll say. Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, if I could just be a judge in the land, every man with any concern would get an audience with me, and I would get him justice. Now, what's he doing? Here's a person who, to get their issue taken care of, they would make their way to the king. But before they got to the Lord's anointed king, Absalom would be there to hear the case, to flatter them. And he said, you know, the king's not up early, so he's not open yet. Uh, the king has nobody to hear this, and so you're going to have to wait forever. But I tell you what, I'll hear it for you, and I'll render your justice. And they never made it to the king. He got them to stop short of the king. Now no one saw David anymore. They all saw the handsome, long-haired Absalom. And he claimed to get them justice. And that's not all. He was politician extraordinaire. Notice this last verse. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put his hand out and take hold of him, and he would kiss him. He'd shake their hands and kiss all the babies. Absalom did this for all of Israel, and he came to the king. When they came to the king for judgment, he came between the people and the Lord's anointed king. You got that, right? And by doing this, he won their hearts. So he got a job, and he stole the hearts of the people. He did this for four years, the text says. That's a long time. That's a lot of people he influenced, a lot of hearts that he won, but he patiently, methodically worked this thing out. How shrewd is that? How determined is that? And finally he decided he had enough favor he had the poles high enough in his favor that it was time to move. He decided his strategic location shouldn't be Jerusalem. That's a little bit too dangerous. He decides he goes back to Hebron, where he was born, where David was anointed the first time or proclaimed the first time to be king over Judah. He, and before he made this long trip, he goes to his father and he says, I'm going to Hebron to fulfill a vow I made years ago. David should surely by now have heard some of the things Absalom's doing, but David is so oblivious. He doesn't pay attention to this. He's getting reports from everywhere. Here's what Absalom is doing. But he doesn't, just doesn't care. He acts just like a naive person. He kind of wonders, why are you going to Hebron? Well, it's a vow I made. And David says, okay, go in peace. The last words he ever says to his son Absalom is the word go in peace as his son goes to create a coup attempt on his own father. Interesting irony. He goes to Hebron. He takes 200 people from Jerusalem with him to give him a, an air of royalty, to give him an air of approval from the big capital city. But these 200 people have no clue what's about to happen. They gladly go with him to have this celebration, this party, but they have no idea what he's doing. In the meantime, he sent out letters to all over Israel, getting people who loved him, people he made contacts with, to come down there and join him for an inauguration party. He's going to proclaim himself king a competitor to the throne. And that's what he does. He goes to Hebron. 
He does this very same thing. He decides, and all these people start proclaiming. The people from Jerusalem are like, whoa, what's going on here? And he proclaims himself king, and he even gets one significant person to join him. Ahithophel is his name, one of the prized wise men David used to have on his cabinet. But now he's kind of gone into retirement in his hometown, which isn't that far away. But to lend some kind of legitimacy to his claim to the throne, he gets David's first greatest wise man to join him. How do you think he did that? Ahithophel has a granddaughter. Her name is Bathsheba. I just wonder, I just wonder in my mind if after that affair with Bathsheba, if this wise man got so frustrated with David, so angry with David, he ups and quits and he goes home and he's not going to do this anymore. But now there's a competitor who's going to take over David's place and he's willing to come out of retirement and give him the wisdom and the validity of his position. I don't know that for sure, but it sure looks suspicious to me. So he goes to Hebron and he does all this. And I want you to notice in verse 13 of our pa ta uh, the passage, or verse 13, a messenger came to David after all this stuff has happened. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David and all his servants start packing to run. They know, they know they've just been uprooted. And David knows he can't defeat the beloved Absalom at this point because the polls in the newspaper let him know he's lost favor and Absalom's gained it. Oh, these are an interesting story. We'll look at how David has to go on the run and who supports him and all that in, in the weeks to come. But there's a few things to look at that we can apply from this. Here's question number one. How in the world is David so oblivious to all this? How can he be living there among the people and being king of the people and not know what's happening to undermine his own authority? How can he not know when all these reports come to him and he knows automatically his numbers are down? He's just been oblivious to this. I think we got to be careful as Christians. Listen, we're supposed to be innocent, but that doesn't mean we're oblivious. There was a time Jesus was sending, it's called the limited commission, right? He sends his disciples out into the world to preach the truth. And what God knows, what Jesus knows, and what Jesus tells them, you go out two by two so you don't get discouraged. But I want you to know, not everybody, in fact, you're going to be a minority, not everybody's going to receive your message. Not everybody's going to like what you're doing. You're going to face opposition from people. And here's what he says. I want you to be, well, here's how he describes it. I am sending you like sheep, sheep into the midst of wolves. Disciples are like sheep, and we live in a world that's full of what? Wolves. It's dangerous. You do know, right? Sheep with a bunch of wolves around, it's not good because sheep is food, and wolves eat. We are to be like, this is the disciples, this is us, y'all. We are sheep in the midst of a world of wolves. So what does Jesus tell us to do? I want you to be as wise as serpents. I want you to be in the know. I want you to study your world. I don't want you to be stupid. 
I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to be foolish. I don't want you to be ignorant of what's out there in the world. I want you to know it's dangerous out there. I want you to know there are influences out there that would love to undermine you. There's people out there who would love to ruin your faith. There are certain forces out there that would love to crush you under Satan's heel, right? There are things like that. I want you to be wise as serpents and yet innocent as doves. He says it this way when they're in the garden. And he knows the troops are on their way to get them. Watch and pray so you don't fall to temptation. You know what he means? I want you to pray and trust in God, but I want you to watch. Keep your eyes peeled. You are not completely you are not completely vulnerable. Watch yourself. Read the situation you're in. Look at the environment and know the dangers that are there. You don't, you don't have to fall to everything. You can pay attention and see signs. Or maybe, maybe you should see the way Paul describes it. Here's what he says. Don't be outwitted by Satan. You are not ignorant of his schemes. There's not a soul in here with any kind of experience with temptation who can say, oh, I just don't know how Satan's going to trip me up. I just don't know how he's going to come after me this week. Oh, really? Come on. You know your experience. You know what's in the world. You know those things that appeal to you that they shouldn't, but they do. And they get you every time. It's that gossip. You know, when I get together with these people, I gossip all the time. Well, you're supposed to be with them next Tuesday night. Don't act like an idiot, like you have no idea what you're going to talk about. Watch your mouth, most especially when you get around sister so-and-so and, and, you know, the women playing cards or whatever. I don't know. I'm not picking on women. It could be just as bad men, right? Preachers are the worst. That's how I get out of trouble. I said, well, preachers are the worst. We know how Satan's going to get us. Don't act like like you had no clue that going on the Internet at that time of day is something you can't handle. Don't act like you don't know it. Use your brain. Jesus says we're not going out there like ignorant, naive people. This world is full of wolves. This world is full of people who for some reason, when you get around this person, you become like a servant. You do everything they do, and you can't seem to influence them. They influence you. Don't be dumb. Pay attention. There's certain places and certain times of the day you should not go. It's just that's just something you've learned from your experience. So pay attention. Watch. Yes, you pray. Yes, you pray. But you watch too. And use your brains. David was oblivious. For four years, his son was preventing it. Was he not wondering where are the people? Why are they not coming to me for help? Where are the people? They're stopping with Absalom. Oh, well, how did I know that? Because for the last three years they've been doing it, David. Duh. Second, Absalom. Why does he seem so restless? Why is he so impatient? Absalom probably is the next in line for the throne. All he has to do is wait. Make yourself royal. Use this time to be making yourself and shaping yourself into somebody who deserves to be king. Use this time to mature yourself. 
But no, that's not what he's doing. That throne should be mine, and so I'm maneuvering. I'm plotting. I'm getting impatient. I'm using envy, and I'm using slander, and I'm using my arrogance and my charm, and I'm doing everything to grasp for the power that I want. You know, Jesus had this experience in the garden. Here comes Satan, and Satan says, listen, I'll give you all the, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, which Jesus has now. God's plan was he's going to give Jesus authority and all authority on heaven and earth. Is that not true? You remember on the Great Commission, right before he gives the Great Commission, it's all authority has been given. Do you know why? He earned it through suffering. That was God's plan. That was the deal. Satan comes along and says, I tell you what, I'll give it to you right now without the suffering. Oh, that's tempting, isn't it? I get what I have coming to me, but I don't have to do the suffering. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And Jesus says, no, I can't do that. I cannot short-circuit that thing. And that's not what he does. This is called the Ishmael principle. This is the principle that says, and this is what happened with Abraham. Abraham, if you'll let me, if you'll let me work in you, you will have a seed that will multiply among the stars in the heavens. But he has to wait 25 years. And he gets so impatient. And he gets so fidgety and restless. God must be, God's not going to, oh, so, so Sarah says, well, I got an idea. Use my handmaid, Hagar. Oh, yeah, that's what he means. I'll use my wife's friend. I'll have a girlfriend, and through her, I'll have the seed. And he gives birth to Ishmael. God says, that's not the way, but you just messed up the world. For the next thousands of years, there's going to be war all over the Middle East because you couldn't wait for me. You will mess up your life if you don't wait on God. Absalom discovered that. But you know what? That's not the main question I have in this text. Here's the main question. The people. Why were the people so easily turned so quickly? They knew David was their king, the one the Lord placed over them. He was their king, and yet they were convinced over time by the charm of this human being to give their heart to someone else. Let me ask you something. Do you know who your Lord's king is? Do you know who your Lord is? Do you know who your king is? Our king, the one sitting on the throne of our lives, is Jesus the Christ. But you know how easy it is to give our heart to some other royalty? Our attention can be turned so quickly. We know who he is. God has placed Jesus in our life and said, you submit to him. He is your ruler. Right? We are his servants. We are the slaves of Christ. We are his servants. We are to say whatever. His will is to be done in our lives as it is in, on, in heaven. We know who we should be serving. It's Jesus, but it's so easy, isn't it, living in this world to have our hearts turn from that. How does this happen? Go ahead and hit those three if you would put on here. Maybe 
Maybe we're impressed with the appearance and promises that others offer. Something else comes along in our lives. Something else interferes. Before we really give our, our entire lives and allegiance to Christ, something else comes along and it seems like it works better. It works quicker. It's more impressive, right? It looks royal. It looks so good. Get this job, get this wife, and there's the American dream. That's one of the things that replaces Jesus. The American dream. Here's what you do next. Here's what you do next. Find this beautiful wife, get this great job, get all this money, and you get all this house, you get all this stuff, and there, there it is. It's laid out for you, and it is so alluring. And it's, it's what every movie and every TV show and movie star that we admire so much, that's exactly the plan they take. And instead of serving Jesus, we serve the American dream. Maybe we are determined to get ourselves to the feet of Jesus. Maybe we are. Maybe we've even bowed our, na- our, 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 our knees to him and confessed him as Lord. But somewhere on the, on the way to church, right, we tend to go and give our lives to God. But somewhere along the way, something stops us short. And we're distracted and we never actually get there. Maybe I would prefer a great baseball career for my kids. And on my way to serving Jesus, man, this really catches my eyes. My eyes are just caught by this, and I want this so bad that I'm willing to suspend everything else and go in pursuit of this, and I never actually make it to the feet of the king in my allegiance. Or maybe something else looks so much more friendly and accepting and so easy. I don't know what it is. But there are so many things. According to this story, there's this way that the people have their hearts stolen. Instead of giving their heart to the king's anointed, the Lord's anointed, the king, they give their heart to somebody else. How easy is that for us? Our hearts should belong to our Lord and Savior who died for us. But instead, we give it to something much less than him. Enticed by the ways of the world. And suddenly our hearts are drawn away and they don't belong to God any longer. And one day we find that the throne of our lives is occupied by something that's not the Lord at all. We've removed him and replaced him with something else. Jesus said it this way. Where your treasure, your hope, your dreams, your confidence is. That's where your heart is. So tonight my question is, who really has your heart? If it's not the Lord, you need to change occupants. You need to make a response tonight. Now's the time as we stand and as we sing.